This is News Talk on the VOCM Bigland FM radio network. The views and opinions on this program are not necessarily those of this station. And now your News Talk host, Linda Swain. Well, good afternoon, everyone. And uh, while it's uh, not half a bad day here on the eastern portion of the island on the west coast, it's a whole other story. Weather warnings remain in effect for many parts of the west and southwest coast of the island. With high winds and heavy rain, the uh, order of the day, a number of flight cancellations and delays have occurred as a result. Uh, it's wise, especially this time of year, to check with your local carrier or go on your uh, favorite airport website, whether that be Deer Lake or St. John's or Goose Bay, to find out uh, what is on the go and if your um, flight has been affected. Gander as well, of course. Uh, crossings, meanwhile, on the Gulf uh, have been cancelled for today and tonight. And these conditions, according to meteorologist David Neal yesterday, will continue through to tomorrow. So a fairly significant rainfall event uh, that's uh, taking place there now and high winds gusting to about 140 160 in the wreck house area so uh, a lot of vehicles would be wise to uh, hold off I can't imagine being able to drive in something like that. No, and that's when you frequently frequently see, you know, larger vehicles, especially the ones that catch the wind, so mm -hmm. to speak, uh, you know, toppling over. So uh, probably best to uh, stay put for the time being if you have travel in your future. Now, you made me do a double take today, Claudette. <laughs> I went in to uh, give her a bit of information, and uh, I looked at her. I was thinking to myself, my goodness, I, I don't remember seeing you tattooed from head to toe like that before. Well, it's, you know, I'm, I'm a person who is allergic to pain, so I do not want a tattoo. Uh, but I thought to be, a, you know, I have to wear a compression sleeve on my hand and on my arm. I thought, why not get one that looks like I do have a tattoo, just so I can have that alter ego. It's really catching the eye, it's I have liberating. to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was, I was thinking to myself, wow, she must have had that done like lickety split. They must have had a team working on her. It almost looks like Hannah, but no, yeah, you can get, you don't have to wear those com ugly compression ones of that just look like they're pants hose that just kind of go over like your arm. Like the ones that Harold Wallowitz wore there on <laughs> Big Bang. I don't even remember. Uh, but yeah, no, you don't have to. Like you can, the sky's the limit in terms of design. So I thought I'll never get a full sleeve done like, you know, somebody who's a lot more braver than I am. So I thought that's the next best thing. Well, I'll keep that in mind next time I need, you know, develop carpal tunnel or something. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'll be the coolest Person tunnel with carpal tunnel syndrome <laughs> in this newsroom. Well, um, anyway, it looks great. Thanks. <laughs> Um, in other news, Transportation and Works Minister John Abbott responded today uh, after the opposition released the results of an access to information request that showed more than 2,700 deficiencies at the new Western Memorial Regional Hospital in Cornerbrook. He spoke with reporters today, including VOCM's Sarah Strickland. Is the province buying a lemon when it comes to a hospital in Cornerbrook? Absolutely not. So in terms of the deficiencies, and I think one thing Mr. Patton failed to comment, when he requested the information, he was given two reports. An initial report of just, I think there's 2,748 deficiencies. The second report 
that number had come down to 339, and currently it stands at 261 so-called deficiencies. When you look at that list, and we, will, we do have that here for you if you wish, uh, we're talking things like floor trim, caulking, and that's what is required of the contract, and our inspectors, our staff, with the hospital staff, we'll go room by room, floor by floor, to denote any quote-unquote deficiencies. If there's a marking on the wall, if there's a caulking uh, missing, is there a floor trim? All of those things, some, and some equipment uh, wasn't due to be installed until later uh, in the contract, which would be between now and April. So we have that full list there for you. So in our view, this, this is definitely uh, no smoke, no fire. Uh, but Mr. Penton decided to raise it for, obviously, for his own reasons. The contract clearly states the process that we need to follow to make sure we get a, a building that is fully finished at the time uh, the patients get ready to move in. Uh, we made a full payment, or excuse me, a, a progress payment, 50% of the contract uh, there in the fall because it met the requirements of the contract, which meant that it was near completion. We know in any of these large projects, then there's going to be several months to actually finalize those very finite uh, details. If you say it's just a few things, where did the 2,700 deficiencies come from? As an example, so if you look at the report that I'll just, uh, we have a copy there for you, uh, talks about 261 deficiencies. In that, over 80 talk about floor trim. So it's just room by room, small items, some that in the initial one might have been a bit larger, but they have been addressed uh, under the contract uh, as of between that time that was released probably in uh, November to, to December. So most of these issues are now fixed? Most of those are fixed and all will be fixed uh, before the, uh, the contract requirements are met. The thing, but the other thing to just note is, should they not be fixed for whatever reason, the contractor is responsible on a going forward basis. And that is the benefit of the P3 model, because they have full responsibility and control for building maintenance. So if it's not fixed now, it would have to be fixed at some point at their cost in any event. So that's, that's how this contract works, and which is one of the benefits of the B3 model that we've uh, executed here. Why is this only coming up now? I mean, like, are you guys monitoring this frequently? Yeah, yeah. so as, like any new build, uh, we will, with the hospital team and our team here at uh, Transportation Infrastructure, we're on site. We're on site daily. Uh, we're working with the contractor, and there's several who are doing, whether it's mechanical uh, or painting, uh, floor trim, tile, caulking, you name it. So they're, as I said, they're going room by room, floor by floor, to denote those. Some you'll notice that there's a marking on a wall, right? That would be repainted, clean, whatever is required. Some, and there's some small equipment that w won't be put in until uh, they're ready to receive patients. Minister, you said you made a progress payment of 50%. How much was that payment? Uh, and secondly, do you have full confidence in the builders? Uh, the, I'll answer your second question first. We do have full confidence. This contract has worked quite well. The contractors have performed quite well. Uh, if you realize, they had to uh, build and construct this and hire staff through the COVID period, and they met all of those challenges. Uh, we're quite pleased with, uh, with the, the end result. 
Uh, the progress payment, which was 50% of the contract, was $320 million plus HST. So does this put any delay in the next phase of the hospital opening? No, it doesn't. Uh, and again, if you look at the report, everything, all these deficiencies have to be addressed and finalized by April of next year, and then patients are moving in uh, shortly thereafter. So that was Transportation and Works Minister John Abbott responding to a uh, release from the opposition yesterday um, outlining a, an ATIP request that they had made showing some 2,700 deficiencies at the new Western Memorial Regional Hospital in Corner Brook. Uh, John Abbott saying pretty much uh, a lot of them not of any great consequence. Um, and um, John Abbott was speaking with reporters, including VOCM's Sarah Strickland. Well, when we come back, uh, connections for seniors getting close to a million dollars to help seniors stay in their own homes longer. This is News Talk on VOCM. Bring in the new year with a special edition of the Irish Newfoundland Show, 9 p.m. New Year's Eve. We're back. Well, Connections for Seniors getting a $900,000 funding boost from the federal government to help seniors stay in their own homes longer. Federal Minister of Seniors Seamus O'Regan announced the funding today. Here's some of what O'Regan and Executive Director Mohammed Abdallah had to say today come away from a tour of the deanery here and what you're going to do with it to come from just paying a home visit to a senior who you're helping out it's overwhelming and uh, and it's marvelous and this place I think has been here 140 years the deanery itself built in 1884 um, I think when it's done this is going to be transformative not least of which for the 35 seniors who will need it or who do need it. The room we're in now is going to be uh, an event and dining space, and there's also going to be space for staff, because taking care of those who care, I think, is really important, too. Um, I think people in the city, myself included, will appreciate this building and will appreciate how it's now being used for seniors. I think this is fantastic. Nearly one quarter of Newfoundlanders and Labradorians are seniors. I've told some of the crowd on the mainland that I deal with, if you want to take a time machine, the future is Newfoundland and Labrador. And that's the challenge that we face, that half our population is 50 and above and a full quarter are seniors. Um, so we have a wonderful culture here, and we always have, of looking after our parents and our grandparents. It's what we do. It's, what, it's, what we, it's who we are. But as with everything, we always have to make the extra effort to make sure that everybody's covered. My job as Minister for Seniors is really about dignity, I always say, um, and making sure that seniors can age in health, in safety, and in dignity. That comes down to choice and to inclusion and to affordability and to community, to community. That's what Connections for Seniors is about, and that is why I'm very happy to be here. In 2021, our government started a program called Age Well at Home. We put aside $19 million to support organizations that are helping seniors in their community age at home, in their communities. Now I am here to announce we are investing $39.6 million to fund 71 more organizations right across Canada 
and $800,000 of that is going to Connections for Seniors right here in St. John's. Mm -hmm. That is going to help Mohammed and his team uh, offer in-home support services to 2,000 seniors in the city. Things like meal deliveries, housekeeping, transportation, and what every townie longs for, snow removal. <laughs> These sound like everyday things, and they are, but doing little things to help people thrive means a lot to a lot of people. Good morning, um, everybody, colleagues, friends, and um, I'm Mohamed Abdallah. I'm the co-founder, ED, and representative today for Connections for Seniors. Um, first, I would like to extend a warm welcome to Minister Reagan, of course, and MP Joanne, a.k.a. longtime colleague. <laughs> uh, your presence really um, underscored the significance of today's event and the fund that we have received. It will make a lot of difference uh, going on in the next few years for seniors in our community and hopefully extend that beyond those two years. Um, uh, Today marks a pivotal moment for our organization. We are thrilled to announce that we have received the generous funding uh, via Age Well at Home initiative uh, that will enable us to develop and enhance our key programs, uh, transportation, food security, voluntari uh, volunteerism, and uh, social enterprise. Um, our transportation program uh, has been running for about three years. Uh, but it has been embedded in all our other programs, but now we'll be able to add accessibility to it. Uh, that fund will help us uh, drastically to have actually an accessible van with wheelchair accessibility and help a lot of the uh, seniors that the transportation cannot cover uh, with our program and a gap can be created. So uh, now we're more inclusive uh, as we move forward to support seniors in the community. Um, um, food security. Um, we uh, were hoping to complete that program from just having grocery shopping help or um, food hampers to having actually well healthy nutritional meals uh, delivered to seniors in our, to their homes. We had a pilot program a couple of years ago and we used to deliver over 1,200 meals every month and I think that number will double in the next couple of years so seniors can actually have more access to nutritional food uh, and nutritional meals uh, every day uh, of the year. Um, volunteers are the heart of our community, and we do need a lot of work to get more volunteers involved in the work that we're doing. Uh, a few years ago, uh, when we started Connections for Seniors, we visited a few organizations, and every successful organization has a good pool of volunteers that do more than 50% of their work, and that's our target, is to run most of our programs through volunteers and involve uh, intergenerational uh, activities and volunteers through our work so seniors can be more integrated in the community and not isolated uh, in our community. Um, and last and not least is social enterprise. We are looking to add more sustainability to the programs that we're creating, so we're taking a huge lens over the next two years to analyze the work that we're doing and the programs that we're creating, not just to die with the funding, but to make that bug go longer than those two years and not to be depending on the fund, but to be taking that fund to be independent in the future for the seniors that we're serving in the community. So that will go a long way, not just for those $800,000, hopefully will be something that we can say we used for 10 years, not just two years. Um, 
I just want to express our deepest gratitude to uh, Minister Reagan again and MP Joanne Thompson uh, and ESDC uh, for the unwavering support and believing in our uh, proposal and our programs coming forward. Um, the contribution will speak to itself. I will say that. So we will see and we'll talk in a couple of years about how much success we have achieved. So big promises, but no promises. <laughs> but we'll do great. <laughs> um, in the closing, I will invite each one of you to join us on this exciting journey together, and uh, we can make substantial difference in the lives of our seniors in the community. Thank you for your support and your trust, and uh, thank you for your commitment uh, to our community and supporting all the adults as well. So that was uh, Seamus O'Regan today with the Executive Director of uh, Connections for Seniors, Mohammed Abdallah, and they were speaking at the deanery today on Patrick Street in St. John's. Well, uh, Claudette, have you been following what's going on with Celine Dion? Yes, the, she has stiff face syndrome, and her her uh, sister Claudette yeah. posted something uh, yeah. about that. Um, so Celine Dion's uh, representatives have not responded to requests for comment after her sister told a Quebec news outlet that she does not have any control of her muscles. The 55-year-old announced last December that she had been diagnosed with stiff person syndrome, a rare neurological disorder, which leads to muscle rigidity and spasms that can be very painful uh, and has effectively like put her career on on hold or hiatus. Uh, Claudette Dion says uh, her sister is focused on overwhelming, uh, overcoming sorry, her illness, but that progress has been difficult. And uh, Celine Dion, perhaps one of the most famous uh, singers of the 20th century, 21st century. So, um, yeah, very uh, concerning indeed. It is, uh, especially, I mean, her voice is her life, and then you take that away. It's so easy to think, you know, while there are other illnesses that could be worse but when it takes away every sense of the person that you think that you are I mean without her music she would have to find out who she is which would be another long painful road I'm sure um, well she does have a good foundation mm -hmm. um, she comes from a very very large very close family in right. Quebec and they are just ordinary people like you or I uh, so she does have that uh, that foundation if you will yeah um, but she's been in the limelight in the in the the focus of, of a lot of people's attention since she was a very young girl, 13 oh, yeah. years I mean, old, her I believe. whole relationship, too, with her, her then-to-be-husband and then the passing of her husband. I mean, she's just constant in, in the news. But I just can't imagine how hard it would be for her to live without having that part of her life where it has been such a big portion of her life. You well, know? like Linda Ronstadt, she can't sing anymore. Oh. And, uh, you know, when you think yeah. about that instrument being uh, dampened, my goodness gracious, what a what a huge talent uh, she is mm -hmm. as well. So, uh, yeah, very sad indeed. Um, and so a lot of people watching uh, her... Um, progress if you will yeah because uh, she's hoping for her progress i'm sure she's doing everything possible that she can to keep up for as long as she can because it's going to be pretty hard for her to uh, turn that around i think but yeah and i i'd never heard of this um Stiff particular person. illness i didn't until, either until she was diagnosed yeah yeah one of those rare ones that only come to the fore when someone you know 
with a voice, so to speak. Yeah, I don't know if it's um, one in a million or one in so many million. It's it, it's that rare f- to be able to get that particular disease. Gosh, I just really feel for her. It would be amazing, though, if uh, there is something out there that can help her keep her career extended. Yeah, for sure. Well, um, thanks for that. We're up to news time now with Sarah Strickland. You're listening to News Talk on VOCM. Make a request anytime by calling 709-273-5211 or 1-888-590-8626. And your request just might win you a cozy VOCM winter toque. Your Merry Christmas station. Your VOCM. And we are back. Well, some 50,000 pounds of lost fishing gear was removed from the waters around Newfoundland and Labrador this year thanks to a project made possible through DFO's Ghost Gear Fund. Executive Director of the Canadian Centre for Fisheries Innovation, Keith Hutchings, joins me now. Well, hello, Keith Hutchings. Hi, Linda. How are you? Good, good. So, uh, Canadian Centre for Fisheries Innovation uh, and its partners uh, just wrapping up a a year with approximately 50,000 pounds of fishing gear retrieved to date. Is that right? Tell us a little bit about your Ghost Gear project. Yeah, so that's correct. So this was, as you said, uh, about uh, a year project that uh, was started um, last spring. And um, this was related to a call from Department of Fisheries and Oceans related to in the wake of Hurricane Fiona and some of the significant devastation is seen on the south and southwest coast. Um, And some of that obviously included um, the loss of fishing gear. Uh, A lot of it was uh, related to stages and and buildings adjacent uh, to the water that harvesters had that uh, you know significant force uh, that we saw at that point in time was washed out into harbors and coves uh, and this initiative looked at uh, retrieving uh, identifying obviously uh, with with our technology and different efforts we made to identify it uh, then we hired uh, gear retrieval uh, groups and companies to, to do that and um, then looked at uh, upcycling uh, and recycling to make sure that uh, we could um, restrict the amount that went into landfills as much as possible. Uh, We've had some significant success uh, on that side of things as well. Well, we all remember those images uh, after Fiona, and it, you know, just overwhelms uh, the thought just to see how much devastation was there and how much debris. So, you know, how do you take on this kind of a project? What what was involved? Well, initially what we did was that uh, we were able to use uh, some, you know, uh, pretty significant technology in terms of side scan sonar, uh, multi-beam. Uh, we used the uh, Ludi Pugluck, which is a Catholic Corporation uh, research vessel, uh, and that was the first step. Uh, but I should back up. First, we went and basically went to the communities, our project teams and members, went to went to Burgio, went to um, you know other areas like La Poil, Port of Basque, and basically first off, uh, you know, built that relationship or started the communications with with the local communities and local leaders. Uh, in terms of what it is we we were involved with to do, and the first hand knowledge was probably the most important in terms of getting an understanding of of where some of this gear may be um you know what has may have been retrieved, what hasn't been where it could be, and to start that process so that was very beneficial, and we need to acknowledge the communities that were involved and and those in the community, whether it's harvesters, whether it's municipal leaders 
whether it's folks with the Harbor Authority, you know, the great um, contribution they made in terms of supporting our project. So, you know, that was the first step. Then we, we, we used the research vessel and the side scan sonar to basically do some uh, seabed mapping. Uh, you know, with that intel we had where we thought gear was gone, uh, we met a lot of the seabed in, the, obviously it's a vast area, but some of the coves and harbors, uh, we mapped some of the seabed, which gives an initial indication of where gear may possibly exist. Uh, we took that data, uh, manipulated that data, and made it available then to our uh, retrieval crews. Uh, that they, that was the first stop for them in terms of where possible gear may be. We uh, also had the use of an ROV, which became very helpful in terms of dropping it down at particular locations where we thought gear was too, to get an understanding of exactly it was fishing gear, what type it was, what amount was there, and what will be involved in actually retrieving that. Uh, one of our uh, contractors, too, was also a commercial diver. Uh, that gave some unique perspective, too, in areas where, you know, we weren't really sure what you were seeing, but and as well to, to make the preparatory work to retrieve it. Uh, certainly helped as well. So there was a there was a continuum in terms of a pathway of of a number of things we did to retrieve the gear, and uh, you know, and, and it's any project you learn as you go, uh, and we can use going forward. But uh, yeah, so that was sort of the pathway we used, Linda. And some of this gear, of course, was uh, washed out to sea from sheds and the like. Uh, it had been stored, and um, you know, represents, I suppose, a huge. Uh, economic blow to uh, harvesters. Were you able to reunite any, um, you know, harvesters with gear? Yes, good question, Linda. Yeah, so um, we work with the local harvest authorities uh, as well in, in the region, and any gear that we recovered that was marked or was possibly used as reusable, uh, the harbor authority would um, take control of that and would uh, try and return it to the local harvesters and or if there was gear that could be reused to connect that to uh, the fishing community as well. We did have some gear that we, we recovered that we um, that we could return or the Harbor Authority could return to, um, to actual harvesters. Um, I don't know what the percentage was. It wasn't a high percentage, but uh, a lot of this gear uh, based on being washed out uh, was damaged and, you know, a lot of gear entangled. Um, as well, but uh, you know, from from our point of view, once we retrieved, we also had um, um, you know groups that we work with. Um, the Atlantic Healthy Oceans Initiative, uh, out of Gross Morn, were a valuable partner in terms of overseeing a lot of the activities we did, and they had their crews that actually, once it was retrieved and landed, it, uh, it was separated. So obviously, from a, a recycling point of view, there's various manners in which that needs to be uh, prepared to be recycled. So whether there's lead line, obviously that needs to be taken out, whether there's certain plastics that need to be separated. So there was significant work that was done by our partners like Ahoy in terms of doing that activity so we could get it to uh, recycling and again, uh, not going into landfills. So this was an extraordinary circumstance, of course, but there's ghost gear all along uh, the coastline of Newfoundland and Labrador. So uh, are you continuing this project? How is that working? Yeah, so, you know, in, in, in that comment you make, Linda, yeah, you know, obviously some of this, or a lot of it was related to uh, Hurricane Fiona, but as you had indicated, we identified gear too that I think we're confident in saying wasn't part of that activity and wasn't the origin of that gear being in the water. So there was other activities or other events over the years, you know, 
that, that had transpired that had resulted in gear being lost. So some of that was retrieved as well, um, you know, as it would be, as you, you know, obviously, um, you know, used uh, side scan cylinder, used ROV, use other uh, things that were available to you to identify the gear. So, yeah, there was there was all types of gear. And obviously it, what all, it wasn't all fishing gear that was, was seen either. There was other debris in the water at times. There was other areas that we did, uh, you know, side scan activity, and we didn't see any indication of ghost gear. So, you know, all this uh, seabed mapping and the intel that we developed and collected, all that will be going to DFO at the end of our project. So, you know, there's valuable information learned about where ghost gear is, and but there's also valuable information about where it is not and where, it, you know, areas do not have ghost gear. So all that is very uh, important information in terms of the ecosystem and management and overall feeding into resource management, I guess. But in regards to future projects, I guess that's uh, uh, DFO in terms of going forward. This project would end as of March 31st, and then future funding, I mean, uh, you know, the investment the DFO has made in this is, is significant. And in terms of the expertise and knowledge we've developed now, CCFI, and with our many partners and with the technology we now have available to us, I mean, we're well-suited moving forward, uh, you know, to do not only in that region, but other regions around the province for sure. So, you, yeah, you touched on it there, but uh, what's the ultimate goal here? Are you hoping to be able to take this information and uh, and use it to, um, you know, develop more projects? Yes, definitely so, yeah. As I said, you know, the methodology we've developed now with this project and the vast amount of partners uh, that we've worked with, whether it's Ahoy, whether it's some of our um, folks that we have hired for uh, retrieval, uh, and developing that expertise with the research vessel, Kitty Corporation, Spark Subsea, and Clean Harbors Initiative. Those were two companies that we use for retrieval. Um, you know, so we have a great base now to move this forward and to use our expertise, um, you know, in other parts of the island as well and work with other groups. Watchings, I do appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Linda, thanks so much for your interest, and any time, certainly, uh, to discuss uh, the project and what it may look like going forward. And Keith Hutchings, of course, is the Executive Director for the Canadian Centre for Fisheries Innovation, and you can see that story up on vocm.com tomorrow with lots of uh, great pictures. Uh, the amount of uh, destruction, of course, caused by uh, Fiona, which is overwhelming, just to see the the debris that was in harbors and coast all along the coastline and i mean this is just one aspect of things but um you know some of these communities you know you could you could practically walk across the harbor with the debris that had been you know pulled into the ocean and it's really so important that they're doing something like that uh i read somewhere that what was that up to 600 years some of the plastics can stay in the ocean the microplastics and of course that's going into the food chain so Mm -hmm. and not to mention how the harm that uh you know they talked about as well about the uh harm that it does to the marine life yeah and ghost gear of course fishes and fishes and fishes and fishes and fishes it continues to fish Mm -hmm. uh so um, 
Yeah, no, great, uh, great innovation there. Uh, very interesting indeed. Fifty thousand pounds, just imagine. Well, uh, it's been a, quite a busy year for the Department of Industry, Energy, and Technology. We're going to check in with uh, Minister Andrew Parsons when we come back right after this. This is News Talk on VOCM. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from four to five p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News Talk on your VOCM. We are back. Well, it's been a busy year for the Department of Industry, Energy and Technology. Andrew Parsons is the minister responsible and he joins me now. So we are uh, back on equalization for the first time in, since 2008, uh, ostensibly because uh, we've been a half province because of our um, oil uh, production. But um, where are we, we right now with oil production? We took a little bit of bit of a blow there for Baden Nord. Um, what's going on? So I mean, we've had a generally positive year. I mean, production has been down, which is one of the reasons we're back on that. And, and I'll be straight up; I don't get caught up in this uh, have-not versus have-province foolishness. I mean, uh, anyways, that, that's a whole thing I can go off on here. Now, what it comes down to is quality of life for people. And we've, we've, we're facing a lot of challenges when it comes to inflation and the cost of living. Uh, so what I've seen is we, when our production is down, when we have fewer barrels, that's having an impact on us, absolutely. But want to look at the things that we've managed to do. So Beta Nord, yeah, that was a real tough blow when we saw that delay. But the good news there is that every indication points to development in the future, whether it's the company hiring uh, a manager here in the province that will oversee it. Uh, when we look at just the conversations we had, have all seemed to be positive. Uh, I, I have an optimistic feeling about that, but like anything, it requires continued attention and work. Uh, Terranova. I mean, just a couple of years ago, that thing was on life support, uh, and there was a very, very serious possibility that it was that was going to be the end of it. Uh, through the work that we put in and with partners, it's returned to production. It is now pumping. Uh, they're going to be ramping it up, and you're talking about that's well over a thousand direct and indirect jobs, and another 70 million barrels over the next decade. So that's again producing for this province. Uh, so you know what? I think overall, it's been a good a good solid year we see a lot of opportunities uh, drilling coming for 2024 we'll continue to work with our partners uh, and it continues to provide so we're we're very pleased with how the year's gone uh, yeah as you said the terra nova is back yeah terra nova's back i, I mean uh, and again that was a real process uh, just going back a couple of years that was one where we were spending nights and days trying to make, find a way forward uh, which we did. And then, in fact, I, I mean, it's delayed through no fault of anybody here. In fact, it was the workers of this province that had to get it back on track. A lot of the work was did end up getting done in Bull Arm. Back on track now, back in production. And, and again, you know, when you talk about oil and gas, uh, there's two things. Number one, there is still demand. And while there's demand, we feel we should be there addressing that. Why would we let demand go to other countries with lesser quality product and not as strong a uh, regulatory fashion as we have? We have an amazing product here. But at the same time, we're having these conversations on increased investment in wind, hydrogen. We're talking more about all these other things. So there's been a lot of talk for a lot of years of diversification, but I really think we're in, we're in that mode here, and we're trying our best to use all the different strengths that we have. 
We've seen some real tech success here in Newfoundland and Labrador, but are we building and growing that industry enough? You know what? I still think there's huge opportunity. It continues to build every year. Just the number of people that are signing up to go to Genesis, uh, to, again, which is the home and basically the incubator of startups, they're getting more interest now than they ever have. Uh, when you look at Tech and L, uh, who have been you know real advocates and gods for the industry, they continue to grow and get more presence and amazing campaigns to let people know about the opportunities in tech. I think there is more to be done, and I think we need to play a part in that in terms of growing the workforce, so both training people we have here, whether they are in the K-12 system or people that might be looking for a change of career, plus we're looking at needing to bring in more. There's going to be huge, huge opportunities there. Uh, so that's something, in fact, I literally, as I was driving yesterday, having a chat with people in the department, we need to work. There's partnerships that are going to be required to address these issues. But uh, there's a lot of cool things going on. Every day we seem to be talking about tech, whether it's Trophy AI last week. I just had an email from that announcement from another young entrepreneur in the province doing some tech that's involved with the music industry, heard the announcement on VOCM, reached out, and we're having conversations there now. So it gets me super excited to see young people coming up with new ideas and wanting to grow them, and we need to be there to help them. Does our immigration help in that regard? Absolutely. I I mean, look, we do not have a population base that will sustain the creation of jobs here for all the different industries. It is not there. We require more people. And look, we we don't have the birth rate to satisfy that. So we have to look within our school system to make sure, you know, that everybody has a full opportunity to avail of these, you know, these different jobs in different sectors. We have to look outside to see if we can bring people back home. you know, originally from here, or we have to look and say, are there other Canadians or other international students and beyond who can come here and have an amazing quality of life and contribute to this industry? So, look, immigration is absolutely going to be one of the keys to solve this. Uh, I love the idea of bringing people here who want to be in Newfoundland and Labrador and are contributing and are working. It's uh, who wouldn't get excited about that? So what are going to be some of the headlines in 2024 from your department? Oh, my God. Uh, Well, what I would say is that uh, we have a number of different things that we're working on. I mean, and sometimes it takes a while to sort of get the headline uh, that comes from work you did a ways before. Uh, We've had some different programs. Uh, One of them we just created just this summer called Job Accelerator and Growth JAG, which is about creating investment here. Uh, So we put that out there. We communicate it to the business community, and hopefully I'll see an announcement on that sometime in 2024. Uh, You're going to see lots of announcements coming from the different supports we provide, whether it's Green Transition Fund, uh, business development. Uh, It is amazing how many communities, startups, new and older companies, and people that we're supporting through here. Uh, I'd like to do a little more to get that awareness out. Um, The RISE program, I mean, just trying to take young Newfoundlanders and Labradorians and give them opportunities elsewhere, we've had unprecedented interest in that. So I don't have any specific headlines, uh, but my thing is that we're going to have a hell of a lot more wins uh, than we ever have losses. There's going to be a lot more good news than bad, and that's the way to keep it. 
And of course, just uh, this week, you put out an RFP to try and see if there are ways to improve cellular coverage, especially along the highway. We all know those areas where you're going to lose. You and I have had these conversations before. I'm about to lose you. Um, so uh, what are we doing in that regard? So look, we're trying to be creative for an issue that is both real but difficult to solve because look you need you know we we have to deal with third parties we have to deal with the big companies that actually provide the service this is not something that is part of our core mandate and also because it's mainly from the federal mandate but we don't put up cell towers so there has to be a business case and it's hard especially along highways where you don't you know we've got thousands upon thousands of kilometers no population base right nearby who's going to pay for this so this is why we say to the industry, look, we're willing to invest. We're willing to work with you to figure out what are the solutions. The tech continues to evolve. Just the other day, the Premier is part of the first ever satellite uh, call where we've got calls bouncing off satellites now as opposed to bouncing off towers, which, look, I, I do think there's going to be a lot of evolution in this in a very short time. But in the meantime, we want to figure out some solutions for now. So we've reached out to the companies to say, what can you throw at us? Uh, and again, I don't think there's going to be a, a one solution fits all. I don't think there's going to be a home run here. Um, but I'll take lots of doubles and singles, and they'll win the game. Andrew Parsons, all the best to you now. Happy New Year and enjoy your Christmas. Thank you so much. Same to you. I hope you and everybody uh, have a great and wonderful holiday and Christmas and really looking forward to 24. So that's uh, Minister Andrew Parsons uh, going over some of the things that his uh, vast uh, department takes care of. Um, uh, this little piece of news came out since uh, he and I spoke. The federal government giving automakers 12 years to phase out combustion engine cars, trucks, and SUVs and gradually increase the proportion, proportion sorry, of electric vehicles on their sale lots each year. Environment Minister Stephen Guibault has announced new regulations that will effectively end the sale of new passenger vehicles powered only by gasoline or diesel by 2035. He says the regulations will encourage automakers to make more battery-powered cars and trucks available in Canada, starting with 20% of all sales in 2026 and rising to 100% by 2035. So government announcing um, the phase-out of a combustion engine car cars, trucks, and SUVs. Um, this is a little uh, innovative uh, piece. It's a high-definition TV from more than 30 million kilometers away. NASA has beamed a video back to Earth using lasers. And guess what the video was? E.T.? <laughs> Well, you know, you would think it was something beyond theme like that. Yeah. What but was it? Uh, what it was was a um, a video of a cat named Taters. Oh, I love this. Chasing a laser pointer. Oh, how amazing. So, yes, it had a theme, right? <laughs> uh, this whole idea of a, of a laser. But uh, it, it was a video of a cat named Taters. Just imagine now, Taters. Um, using a laser pointer as part of a demonstration of technology that allowed data to fly through space even faster than many broadband connections here on Earth. A cat video. A cat video. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> I love it. Uh, so there you go. Um, anything is possible. 30 million kilometers away. 
Um, and uh, that'll be us, it for us for now, Claudette. Um, Brian Callahan is getting ready for tomorrow's show. He's going to be sitting in for me because I... Uh, I'm continuing the musical chair theme here, oh. and we'll be taking over for Patty, Patty. tomorrow. Patty's going to take a day off. So um, there you go. So I'll be doing open line tomorrow. Brian Callahan will be doing back talk, and uh, back talk will be coming to an end on Thursday for the year. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because of the holidays, and then we'll pick it right back up in January. In January. So, uh, yeah, hard to imagine, but here we are at the, uh, the last ebbing rays of 2023. <laughs> what will 2024 bring us, Well. Linda? I'm afraid to ask anymore. <laughs> I know. It's bringing you sickness. Remember COVID? Yes. Do you remember that? That whole thing? And now we've got like war and you got to get know. it out of your way so you'll have a clean slate for next year. Anyway, we all ho- live in hope. So that's what keeps us all uh, buoyed and sustained. So <laughs> all the best. Um, we'll be back uh, tomorrow. Do join us then. Uh, thanks for listening, everyone.